Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and this week I sit down with indie turn Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez to talk about her story on the opening of the Stewart Indian School Museum in Carson City. Later, assistant editor Michelle Rendells talks with indie turn Tabitha Mueller about automatic voter registration in the state. And at the end of the show, I chat with reporter Riley Snyder and assistant editor Michelle Rendells about a movie we all saw this last week, Little Women. But first, let's hear a few indie stories that we read on the radio for our partners over at KUNR Reno Public Radio. Originally reported by Kristen Leonard. Nearly half of the state employee groups recently granted collective bargaining rights are taking steps to certify their employee unions to begin negotiations with the state of Nevada. The American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, Local 4041, said in a news release that the union has been certified to represent three units of state workers, including professional health care workers, non-professional health care workers, and Category 3 peace officers, such as correctional officers and forensic specialists. Those groups are part of 11 different units of state employees allowed to select bargaining representatives and negotiate with the state over salary and certain specified benefits. So far, five of these units have selected unions for exclusive representation. Selecting a labor union for exclusive representation is the final step in the process workers must go through before contract negotiations can begin. All successfully negotiated and funded collective bargaining agreements are expected to take effect on July 1st, 2021. For KUNR News, I'm Tabitha Mueller with the Nevada Independent. Eureka County Sheriff has penned a letter to Governor Steve Sisolak saying he will fight back against Nevada's new red flag gun law. In the letter, which was posted on Facebook, Sheriff Jesse Watts expressed his disdain for the governor, accusing Sisolak of using the October 1st mass shooting in Las Vegas as a way to showboat and grandstand in order to further gun control laws. The red flag law allows family members and law enforcement to petition a court to temporarily seize firearms if a person displays high-risk behavior. Watts wrote that this law and other gun control legislation approved by the governor violate not only the First Amendment's right to free speech, and the Second Amendment's right to bear arms, among others. In response, Attorney General Aaron Ford said in a statement that laws are presumed to be constitutional, and they have a sworn duty to uphold the law until a court says otherwise. For KUNR News, I'm Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez with the Nevada Independent. Cool. So we are here with uh, new indie turn, Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. Um, and so you just recently did a story on the opening of the Stewart Indian School Museum in Carson City. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell me a little bit about like what, how you found this school and what, what made you decide to report on this? Yeah. Um, I actually saw an announcement by the Nevada Indian Commission on Twitter that the Stewart Indian School was reopening as a museum. And... I thought that was really interesting. I had a vague knowledge of Indian boarding schools from the past. And I think when I saw that announcement, I didn't know that there was one in Carson. Yeah, as soon as I saw that, I started to look into it a little bit more. And that history is really, it's really complex. It can be really fraught. And so the fact that, you know, we had an Indian boarding school right in Carson just really intrigued me. And for listeners that don't know what an Indian boarding school is, can you kind of explain to us what it is? I know you get into it in your story as well, but... Yeah, so Indian boarding schools were 
created in the U.S. as part of the 1887 federal program um, assimilation and allotment. And so uh, basically what happened during those years was that Native children from all over the country were rounded up, uh, many times forcibly kidnapped by the U.S. government and taken to these boarding schools where they weren't allowed to see their families, they weren't allowed to leave, um, they weren't allowed to speak their native languages, their hair was cut off, um, and they wore military-style clothing. And so basically the purpose was to assimilate them, to help them become white citizens. And so they, they taught them English, taught them how to work, and in Stewart Indian School's case, they taught a lot of the males to ranch because that's the kind of work that was done here. In the beginning of the program, the children were used as mainly unpaid labor for the school to maintain the schools. And it was only Native American students that were going to these schools. Yes, correct. And it grew over time, as, as you mentioned in your story. It ended up closing in the 1980s? Yeah, 1980. It was open for 90 years. And actually, by the time that it had closed, it had progressed so far as to the point where Native families and the children going to these schools protested the school closing. Mm. And, um, but it was closed due to federal budget cuts and um, some earthquake safety issues with the buildings mm-hmm. were the reasons cited. So you talked about how they were they were protesting at the end. And it obviously started with a pretty, like you said, fraught history. But by the end, in your story, you, you talked about how it had become a lot more beneficial to the students and less, de- and less detrimental. You want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, definitely. So Bobby Rader, who is the museum director for Stewart Indian School, she mentioned that Towards the end of the school and towards the end of the program, the students really weren't victims anymore and became survivors. And they did this through um, marching band, through athletics, through social events, and really created a really strong community there. A lot of changes were made to the way the school was run due to the resistance of the students and their families. And so by the time that the school ended, the students weren't forcibly taken anymore. Obviously, a lot of their families wanted them to attend school to get an education and saw it as a way for them to get more opportunities. And a lot of Native families also saw the Stewart Indian School towards the end before it closed as a less racist option than public schools. So I think that's why there was a lot of controversy between them closing is because it had become a really strong um, community center for them. So the museum for the Stewart Indian School is funded through state money now, and and that was uh, allotted in 2017? Yeah, I believe 2017, 2019, the Nevada legislature approved $4.5 million for um, the Nevada Indian Commission to restore a couple of the buildings on the campus to open the school cultural center. The museum opening was supported by both governors, Brian Sandoval and Steve Sisolak. Okay, cool. And, and you went to the school. You spent you spent a, a day there checking it out. What, what did you think? Just kind of exploring the museum, and did you have a tour, or did you just kind of do it yourself? Or yeah. So Bobby Rader, the museum director, gave me a tour. Um, I went an hour before they opened, so it was pretty nice and quiet in there. It's pretty small. They have a permanent exhibit up called Our Home, Our Relations, which is a name that was chosen actually by the native people from the community that Bobby spoke to, and she asked them what they wanted the exhibit to be called. So when you walk in, the first thing you see is the Sierra Nevada mountain range, and Bobby explained that the reason for that was that there were native children from 200 different tribes that went like far beyond Nevada's borders. 
Something I noticed about the museum was so much of the artwork and everything that you see in there has been created by Native artists in the region. And um, Bobby talked about how they will be partnering with Native artists for contemporary art just to show that, you know, Native art is not just historical, it's present moment too. I think the way that they have the gallery set up, it'll be 100% of the proceeds of the art will go to the Native artists. So the museum itself feels very collaborative. Raider mentioned that the museum was created for them, for the Native community of the Great Basin, and it very much felt that way. And so really the main exhibit and the art is the biggest thing in the museum. The exhibit does a really good job of showing the trauma that the boarding school caused in the beginning, and then how the Native communities not only survived that trauma, but persevered through it to a point where assimilation failed. Right, if the purpose of assimilation was to wipe out Native culture, it failed because Native culture is still here and vibrant. And, and so this, this is a place now celebrating Native culture. Is the community, the Native community in Nevada, are they proud of this? Is this like almost a community center for them now? I know that they have events and stuff going on throughout the year. Yeah, definitely. I think when I spoke to an alumni, Linda Eben-Jones, she graduated from the school in 66, she said that although she did not have good experiences at Stewart, she said that she was really happy the school was finally open because something that I've heard from a lot of people I've spoken to about the school have mentioned that they just they want people to know about it. They want people to acknowledge the history. They want people to understand it. Linda Eben Jones said, you know, it's about time that America wakes up and hears these stories. And she said Nevada needs to hear it, too, because it happened here. You know, she mentioned that Indian boarding schools were a black void in American history. I think it's just fair to say that the community members want these stories to be acknowledged and they want them to be represented by the people that it happened to or that experienced it. Stacy Montooth, the executive director of the Nevada Indian Commission, said that she's spoken to elders in the community who said that it's helping in the healing process. I, I know that in your story they talked about how it was it's a, a cultural genocide, as, they, as they've called it, you know, to all Native Americans in the United States. And this is kind of a, a way of bringing some of their culture back into the community. Um, it, when is it? Is it open for the public uh, seven days a week or what's the what are the hours? So it's open on weekdays, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and it is on weekdays from 10 to 5, and it is free of charge. Cool. All right. Well, well hopefully our listeners can get down there and check it out. So uh, thank you so much for doing the reporting on this, Jasmine, and uh, hopefully we have some more wonderful stories from you in the future. Yeah. Thanks, Joey. This is our home. This is our home. This is Michelle Rindells. I'm a reporter and assistant editor with the Nevada Independent. I'm here today with Tabitha Mueller. She's one of our interns this spring semester at the Indy. How are you doing, Tabitha? Doing all right. You and all three of the other interns collaboratively worked on a project that published uh, recently about automatic voter registration. 
Um, the reason we were kind of interested in exploring this topic is because the new law that Nevada legislators gave the green light to and, and voters really gave the green light to uh, within the last year is finally going into effect. Um, Tabitha, you want to explain a little bit about what the old system was like for autom- for right. voter registration? So the new law, which is basically that automatic voter registration happens when you go to the NEMV. And so instead of opting in to be registered as a voter, you have to opt out. So you will be registered to vote. You can vote with a party. You can vote. You can register as nonpartisan. But you have to say, I don't want to be a registered voter voter in order to not be a registered voter, essentially. So anybody that fills out a form, it's automatically done. Yeah, and a couple states have this. Oregon comes to mind. Yes. You're from Oregon. Yeah, I grew up in Oregon for a while. And um, Oregon has automatic voter registration, and they also have mail-in votes. And both of those things, so one of the positives of automatic voter registration is that it increases voter turnout. One of the negatives, though, is that that increased voter turnout doesn't necessarily result in people showing up to the polls of or voter turnout. And so in some ways, it's like when people tout, oh, we have this incredible amount of you know, graduates or we have this thing. It, it doesn't election. necessarily mean that people will show up on Election Day. What we're seeing is a real dramatic effect of this law. Uh, we saw that in the very first week of this being implemented, just in Clark County, approximately the same number of new voters were added to the rolls in one week as in an entire month on average. Uh, We also have the Clark County Registrar of Voters who has predicted that this is going to, just in Clark County, add 120,000 new people that have not been registered voters before to the voter rolls. We're also seeing a large number of these registering nonpartisan, a considerably smaller group voting Republican and Democrat. We, we sent you guys out to the DMV specifically to explore the question of, are these people that are newly registered, first of all, is the process working in their eyes, but also, are these new registered voters automatically going to be voters? Are, are they just going to be registered and not do anything about it? Tabitha, tell me a little bit about what some of the folks told you. So there was somebody I interviewed who had never been registered before, and he kind of said voting's cool. But he didn't think that he would actually follow through on it. And there were a couple other voices who were really excited about being able to vote that register that way because it made the process easier. And so I think in some ways, Professor David Damore, he talked about how, once again, voters can register, but you might not have that turnout. And so people that do want to go vote, they will show up, they will go vote. Um, But there is that middle ground of people that are excited about registering but may not actually show up to the voting booths. Um, and when we polled people or talked to them, that that one guy comes to mind where he's like, I don't know, voting's cool, but we'll see if I go vote. Yeah, so you had that guy actually admit that he wasn't sure he was going to use his right, but intuitively a lot of the other people were, were tapped into this idea too, that if people haven't been engaged in the process, interested in the process, kind of tapped into what's going on in the larger world, they're probably, that's not going to be enough to get them to the polls a lot of times. I mean, it takes people being motivated to go. And and so that's why people that registered on their own are more likely to, to Absolutely. turn to the polls. Well, and I think, too, we spoke with a couple of campaigns as well. And what they were saying is they're they're now going to try, you know, they're trying to motivate people to go out and show up and vote. And in the Women's March, too, that just happened, that was one of the messages is you need to show up to the voting booths and not just in the general election, but also in the local elections and the smaller ones and the primaries. And so I think that 
in some ways, those third party groups are the ones that are now trying to educate and inform in addition to this new voter registration law. One of the big questions that's intrigued our editor, John Ralston, is what this means for uh, the political parties, Uh, because you're seeing that the nonpartisans are really swelling month after month where that number is growing faster than any others. And people are are just becoming less and less affiliated with formal parties. Um, What does this mean for Republicans, for example, that are are kind of among the slowest of these three groups we're discussing? Um, And the slowest growing, too. And and you reached out to the basically the Trump victory group, which is his campaign here in Nevada. Right. What was their take on this and whether they're worried that their numbers aren't going up as high as the other groups? Well, we had a we had a call and, and they kind of they talked to me a little bit about it, but they said that from their perspective they have a they're pretty dialed into what the voters want and they're not too worried about the new nonpartisans. Um I do think though that more and more people are registering nonpartisan and we are seeing a slower growth in Republican voters, registered voters. And so you could probably go either way on that one. And one interesting point that Professor DeMora at UNLV always brings up is that nonpartisans are not, I, I think he sometimes describes this as sitting on a mountain, Mount Olympus, and making this decision. You know, they're completely right. nonpartisan and impartial. They nonpartisans have. That, Within that group, there's trends. Exactly. And nonpartisans can tend to be a little more progressive. Um, you know, if, if you don't believe in a party system, but you're still actively engaged, you know, you're still actively engaged in the process, you also have your own thoughts and beliefs and you tend to lean more Republican or more Democratic or libertarian. You know, you you still have leanings showing up in polls as well. And the Republicans believe that what they can do is use their data operation and, and try to predict uh, from this large pool called nonpartisan, what, who among there is really kind of right. like a Republican. And, and what nonpartisan voters want. I think that um, what the Trump victory campaign talked about as well was Governor Sisolak's sort of more moderate leanings. Um, you know, he wasn't he didn't take a huge stand on gun control, which we've seen sort of on a national level. He didn't take a massive, you know, it was, and his legislation has been a little more moderate um, than maybe some other governors in other states. Yeah. So that was their argument for saying we're still a swing state. We're still a battleground. It's still worth playing in Nevada, right. even though in the past couple elections it's gone pretty Blue. democratic. Um, but they still see plenty of opportunity here um, because a state that really went toward a pretty moderate Democrat um, maybe is not totally settled in this, the far left camp at this point. Exactly. And, and and I think, too, is Nevada has gone back and forth in Various elections, and especially in the presidential elections, too. Like you, we did, we, in the article, we included a graph kind of showing when Nevada went red and when Nevada went blue. And it has gone back and forth since, I mean, since the 1900s and since Nevada became a state even. So. Well, thanks so much for your reporting on this, Tabitha, and to our other interns, Kristen, Jasmine, and Shannon, who participated in the story as well. Absolutely. It was a team effort. And we'll continue to follow this issue because automatic voter registration is sure to have implications for this general election that's coming up in November. Um, And we'll kind of look at that to gauge where things are going. Thanks so much, Tabitha. Thank you. All right, so we have Michelle and Riley in the studio today to talk about Little Women. Hey. Hey, Joey. <laughs> how's it going, Riley? It's going great. Let's talk about Little Women. Yeah, Michelle, how's it going? Good. How's Good. it going? 
Good. So we have all seen Little Women now, uh, an Oscar-nominated film uh, directed by Greta Gerwig. Uh, not the 1994 movie starring Winona Ryder and Christian Bale. <laughs> Christian Bale was in Little Women. He, he played Laurie. That's awesome. I gotta watch that. <laughs> I know. Isn't that hilarious? But we watched the one with Timothée Chalamet playing Laurie. But yeah, I, I really liked it. I thought it was good. <laughs> Review's over. That's it. Yeah, that good job. It. All right. Let's all go home. What did you guys think of it? Uh, I really liked it. I read Little Women in middle school and mm-hmm. I haven't really thought about it since middle mm-hmm. school. But I thought that Greta Gerwig did a good job keeping it very lively. I think there's a fear for books written in the 1800s that they'll be like very dry or kind of hard to get into. And I thought did not have that problem at all with this movie. So it was fast. It was very fast paced. Um, it was it was a lot of fun. It was funnier than I remembered. I thought Laura Dern, the actress who played. Yeah. Mary. Yeah. Um, she did a great job. Yeah. What do you think, Michelle? Yeah, I would agree that I think the characters had a lot of dimension. I felt like each each of the four daughters had a very distinct personality. So, yeah, it wasn't kind of maybe what I remember Little Women being when I read it. I think it must have been like second grade. It was forever ago. I thought that they kind of ignored Meg's storyline a little bit. <laughs> that was uh, played by Emma Watson. I mean, yeah, a little bit. But, I mean, there's like kind of three narratives going on in the movie with the three sisters. The three sisters. And well, four sisters. Four sisters. Oh, spoiler alert for a oh, no. 180-year-old book. <laughs> Riley. <laughs> One of the sisters doesn't make it. Um, Poor Beth. R.E.P. Beth. Um, no, I thought, you know, like it, it was trying to be faithful to like the plot of the book and maybe like Meg's plot didn't really go anywhere. Sure. I mean, her, her plot is definitely like she wanted to get married and she wanted to kind of, kind of have this, this a traditional life, you know, for that time. Yeah. And, and so like one of the big questions is like what happens after mm-hmm. that and after you're heavily ever after. So I thought, I thought it did well. I think like there's a scene near the end where the sisters are talking about like, you know, or you do think your book's going to be like a bestseller and, they say, like, well, you know, when you write about it, it becomes important. And so I think that was kind of a, a big theme of both the original book and of this movie. It really showed that, like, you know, kind of the small domestic life is uh, important and valuable. And it means a lot when you're there and both when you're reflecting back on it. It kind of also talks about our job a little bit. When we write about it, it's important. <laughs> yeah, I thought that uh, it differs definitely from so many of the other Oscar nominees that we've been seeing. I've been struggling because so many of them are so violent and I don't really want to watch stuff that's horribly violent. Like I'm avoiding 1917 for now. So, yeah, I mean, it is sort of very different than than any of those with car chases and explosions and people shooting other people. Um, But, yeah, I thought it was a really it stands out in its kind of uniqueness. I I think it was really interesting, too, was how they addressed the criticisms that the book has has since being published faced where the, uh, most people remember the first half of Little Women, right? Where all of the, the, the girls are kind of these free spirits want, going out into the world, doing what they want to do, not feeling that they have to conform to societal expectations in the 1860s. And, and then at the end of the book, they all get married because that's what you're supposed to do, right? Back then. I think that the movie addressed that problem really well with the the kind of the time jumping that they did and also uh, the character Joe, the writer of the family. She's, she's dealing with the publisher of the book Little Women, and he's kind of like, well, you have to have them get married. And I think that that's a great way to address the criticisms that the book has has accumulated over time. Yeah, it was like a meta commentary on, on, like, on the, book. the book. Yeah, but still felt super fresh and like refreshing and mm-hmm. – 
I didn't like the time jumping because I don't think the characters looked different enough from the different ages they were trying to show. I would agree with that. Um, so I had a hard time following that. Um, Florence, Florence Pugh was not a twelve. Does not look like a twelve-year-old. <laughs> I also couldn't tell at the very end. You know, is this real or is this like an ending that was written into the book and is not real? So did Joe really get married, or was she just imagining that? And mm-hmm. is that just she's writing what she thinks wants to be in the book? I. This might be a hot take. I really like Greta Gerwig as a director, and people were saying that she was snubbed for this movie. I think that while she did a very good job directing it, I don't know if it was a huge snub for Greta Gerwig not to get nominated. I think it could have been directed by anyone, and it would have been interesting. It could have been directed by anyone, and it wouldn't have won. You're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I don't think I don't I don't think that this movie lends itself to like a best director uh, category. Although I feel like. Differentiating between best director and best picture is always there's such a small fine line between those two anyway, generally speaking. I just think it's hard to win best picture when you're kind of telling this domestic tale. It is up for mm-hmm. best picture though. I know, but I think it's not gonna win. Oh yeah. Who thinks gonna win? I don't know. The Irishman? I'm not sure. I think like Betty Markets have nineteen seventeen and um Parasite as like the two front runners and once upon a time in Hollywood, but like I mean, it's always like, what movie do you like the best versus what the <laughs> Academy like the best? And so I learned a long time ago, like, if you get really upset about it, it doesn't matter. John, you hear, you're, are you listening to this one, John? <laughs> John, let it go. It's okay that Forrest Gump won. You don't have to be upset about that forever. Just live your life, buddy. Well, uh, to, to end it out, uh, I will say I don't think Forrest Gump's that good. Thanks for joining me, guys. <laughs> this has been the last That's episode blast. of the Any Matters Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'd like to thank Jasmine, Tabitha, Riley, and Michelle for being on this week, as well as KUNR for letting us use their studios. Also, if you have not heard, we are having a pre-caucus Game of Thrones-themed event in Reno at the Nevada Museum of Art on February 20th called The Caucus is Coming. If you'd like ticket information, you can visit our site or our Facebook page. If you like what you heard on this week's episode of Indie Matters and you want to hear more, you can do so by searching for us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you have comments, criticism, praise, or want to tell us what you thought of the movie we talked about this week, you can do so by emailing joey at thenvindy.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, email editors at thenvindy.com. The always wonderful Reno band People With Bodies does our theme music, and you can find more of their music on Spotify and Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week.